0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshalden and
1: today I'm introducing Simone Nante as one of our new hosts for this season. Simone will be interviewing Lois Harder on her book Canadian Club
0: Birthright Citizenship and National Belonging. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simone Antet, and I'm an instructor at Vancouver area universities, namely UBC, Simon Fraser University, and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. For my inaugural podcast interview, I have invited Lois Harder, author of the book Canadian Club, Birthright Citizenship and National Belonging, published by the University of Toronto Press. Professor Harder is a political scientist and the current Dean of Social Sciences at the University of Victoria. Her research interests include citizenship law, social policy, and family law. Her latest book begins with the establishment of the Citizenship Act of 1947 and then examines, from the 1940s to the present, how Canadians confronted situations in which the certainty of birthright citizenship turned out to be less secure, less unassailable than we generally presume. Through court cases and high-profile media stories. the book focuses in particular on the so-called lost Canadians, people who discovered that they had no legal right to claim their birthright. Lois, it is a real pleasure to have you as my first guest.
0: Thanks so much, Seymour, it's a delight to be here with you.
1: As someone who has conducted research on citizenship and nationality issues, I found that people were not always familiar with what citizenship entails. I wonder if you could start by giving us an explanation of what that term citizenship means. And since you detail a number of widely reported cases in your book, maybe you could please explain to us why citizenship matters to our everyday lives.
0: So citizenship is a, is a quite a complicated term with many meanings. Um, so when I, when I tell people that I do work on citizenship, they often think that I do work on immigration or migration rather than thinking about people inside Canada who were born in Canada or who were born to citizen parents. So they're kind of the formal rules of citizenship. So what is your status? Are you, are you a citizen? Are you a permanent resident? Are you a refugee? Um, so those are the formal rules of citizenship. And, and then you know the immigration context, how do you become a citizen? That's often what what people are thinking about. do you take a test? How long do you stay in a country before you can become a citizen? Uh, and then because I also have done a fair amount of research on social policy, we also talk about citizenship in light of uh, for example, social citizenship or the welfare state. So what kinds of entitlements and responsibilities, do we have as citizens, or that we can we can claim on the basis of our citizenship? So our access to to health care, to pensions, to child care, dental care, all of those things are, are also understood as a, a kind of internal mode of thinking about citizenship. But in this in this book, I got very interested in the formal rules of citizenship, which are uh generally taken for granted right we don't really have to talk very much about them because it's just straightforward you either you either have citizenship or you don't um, and then it turns out that in fact it is not straightforward at all it's it's really really complicated um, so that that conundrum or paradox or um weirdness, uh, the the act of making um, assumed things strange was what, what drew
1: me to, to this study. Your title includes Birthright Citizenship. So in Canada, uh, we have uh, what is known as Jus Soli, or sort of Birthright Citizenship. So could you explain to us what that part of your book means, Birthright Citizenship?
0: Yeah. So there are actually two kinds of uh, birthright citizenship. So use solely the law of the soil and use sanguinous, which is the law of blood. And both of those give a person who can claim them an entitlement to be a citizen. So use solely is uh, what Canada uses and what the U.S. uses and in fact has been Uh, fairly common in countries of immigration. Uh, So particularly in the new world, North and South America have used use solely, but the tradition actually comes from the UK, kind of unsurprisingly, right, that Canada would have adopted that model. Uh, And the idea was um, to have a law that incorporated newly conquered people into the realm of the sovereign. So the right of soil, the right of the territorial conquest or colonization uh, was to bring people within the ambit of the ruler. So that's why the law of the, the soil. Now Britain has subsequently changed its rules and um, doesn't have strictly speaking use use solely not for everyone born in the territory, but in Canada and the US, if you're born here, if you're born in Canadian airspace, there's you know there's a um, uh, mention of a story in the book that I talk about, where someone has flown, I believe, from Uganda through the Netherlands on their way to Boston, gives birth in Canadian airspace, and the child is a Canadian citizen because that's that's how the rule works, strictly speaking. Um, so that's usoli. Usanguinus is uh, being born to a citizen parent. And we also have the, those rules in Canada. So if your parent was born uh, abroad, if you were born abroad and you have a Canadian parent, currently, if you have a Canadian born, born parent who was born in Canada, you are a Canadian citizen. And there, the book is, has a number of complicated stories uh, about you sanguineous, that's, because that's really get, really where it gets quite thorny. Um, as to determining uh, what generation born abroad, what is your connection to Canada, how substantial is that connection. And so the thinking is that when you're born abroad, that connection is less certain than if you're born in the country. So physical presence acts as a kind of a proxy for for connection. So birthright citizenship then is, is your entitlement based on your criteria of birth. And every country in the world uses criteria of birth as the basis for citizenship, um, which is interesting when you think about liberal democracies having a story about consent of the governed. Right, So we generally understand, oh, well, you know, we, we agree to the authority of our government and, and thus we are governed and we vote in elections and we throw the bums out or we keep them or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, but the way we actually get that entitlement is not in a democratic way at all. It is on, on the basis of birth criteria. Um, so there's a wonderful scholar at the university of Toronto named. I who has written a book called the birthright lottery that talks about, you know, this kind of feudal, uh, arrangement really, where it's just the luck of where you're born that sets, sets up all kinds of possibilities for your life. And, um, you know, formally, in international law, I think we understand citizenships to be equal. You know if you if you're a citizen, you're a citizen. but of course, we know some countries are richer than others, and it, it really does make a difference uh, where where your genetics happen to land you uh, in relation to the state.
1: Your book has many wonderful sort of stories about citizenship, but you begin your book with the news that in two thousand eight, some Canadians realized that they were unaware that they did not possess Canadian citizenship. So could you tell us why you began your book with that particular story?
0: (laughs) Well, that was actually the moment at which I got really interested in in this question as well. Um, And it it was kind of the flashpoint at which these, these concerns came to light. Certainly, there were lots of people who knew well before 2008 that their citizenship was in precarious circumstances. But because that was the moment in which um, you had to have a passport to cross the Canada US border, prior to that you could just use your driver's license. Um, and so, with the uh, Western Hemispheric Travel Initiative, which was a program that arose out of, out of the 9 11 experience and tightening up the border, it meant that everybody had to have a passport. So, people uh, went to acquire their passports and then and then discovered that their citizenship was in question or maybe they didn't have citizenship. yeah, so I heard that story on the news and I got super intrigued. But, you know, in terms of the question, well why that story, there are so many interesting stories in the news. so um, my my research uh, prior to then had really been around feminist organizing in Alberta of all places, and I uh, from there was looking at uh, same-sex marriage regulation in, in the province of Alberta. Um, and I came across a super interesting law called the Alberta Interdependent Relationships Act, or the Adult, sorry, adult Interdependent Relationships Act, which um, was a kind of cover for recognizing same-sex relationships. So the Alberta government didn't want to confer that standing on same-sex relationships. And so what they did was they allowed any two people, uh, even people who were related, to call themselves adult interdependent partners. So you could create a partnership with with a a friend uh, if you wanted to. And so, you know, you could include same-sex partners there, but it it didn't have to be. So the the idea of having a sexual relationship or not um, sort of fell out of that, right? Until... Until really that law, the expectation was that there was a conjugal relationship between the two parties, and that would be the recognized status in the law. So I I got interested, you know, about, about uh, Pierre Trudeau's famous quote, there's no place for the bedrooms in the, uh, of the, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. Um, And clearly there was uh, quite a lot of room for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. Um, So you know what was the state's interest in the sexual relationships of its citizens and so one of the answers to that question actually turned out to be oh it's because it makes citizens right it's it's about these birth-based criteria that we establish citizenship so who is a parent in the law who is a canadian citizen parent who can then confer their citizenship on their children. So, you know, then then my mind started ticking over. And that feels, again, like one of those situations that should be super obvious. A parent is a parent, a mother and a father, and and away we go. But uh, the law is actually quite specific about who counts, particularly as a father. And we see a lot of stories in, in my book around on the status of wedlock. So if you, for example, in the situation of World War II, and you know the first Canadian Citizenship Act comes in the, in the wake of World War II, um, there were lots of Canadian soldiers abroad having various dalliances with foreign women. Um, they were often not permitted to marry, even if they wanted to. And Canada was very concerned that it did not want to, quote unquote, create widows and orphans. So it didn't want to grant uh, permission to marry because that would mean that if this soldier died, say uh, in, in the D-Day invasion, suddenly Canada would be on the hook for the bride and, and the child. So uh, having this kind of rule about who, who a father was Uh, or who could convey their citizenship in that way, uh, did did a lot of work. Um, And, uh, you know, the flip side of that was that, um, so in that case, the child would inherit their citizenship from their mother. So in a status where, in a case where neither of the parents are married, you get citizenship from your mother because you can know for sure who she is. Um, but less certain about the father. In a, in a condition of marriage, marriage turns husbands into fathers. The law says this is husband, dad, and then citizenship fl- would flow through him. And in before uh, 1977, so from the period between 1947 and 1977 in Canada's First Citizenship Act, the um, you could only, in a married couple, you could only confer citizenship through the father if your child was born abroad. So, you solely still worked, right? If you were born in Canada on Canadian soil, you were a Canadian citizen. But if you were born abroad and your parents were married, you could only get your Canadian citizenship from your father.
1: So, you sort of mentioned about the state and the beginnings of that Citizenship Act in 1947. So could you also sort of give us a bit of uh, the, the nature of the discussion sort of involved in the creation of that citizenship? So you mentioned a bit about uh, wedlock. Were there other sort of things about who should be included as a Canadian citizen or th- also who should not be included? So could you give us an idea of what you discovered?
0: Yeah, so, so interesting. So uh, Paul Martin Sr. Um, goes to the cemeteries after World War II and sees that these graves are not marked as Canadians necessarily. Um, and in fact, these people are considered to be British subjects. And so he gets really annoyed and concerned and certainly the time has come enormous sacrifice has been made and so it determines that we should really move ahead with establishing a Canadian citizenship that's distinct from British subject status um, so you know that uh, and a big consideration then in the in the conversation about establishing that, Canadian citizenship was whether we would still have British subject status as well. And that kind of went back and forth. And uh, John Diefenbaker, who was the head of the Conservative Party at the time, uh, was a very staunch monarchist and really felt that it was important to to keep British subject status as well. Uh, Paul Martin Sr. was not that keen on that arrangement, but he understood that as kind of the cost of of doing business and and Mackenzie Mackenzie King, who was the prime minister at the time, agreed. So um, so that was the consideration. There was some backing and forthing about whether Canadian citizenship should be kind of exclusive. You know, what about the people, you know, from Italy or from Germany that we fought against? Uh, should they have Canadian citizenship or not? Again, Paul Martin's view was we, we should be broadly inclusive. So if you were if you held British subject status prior to the coming in force of the Act, you would be a Canadian citizen as the Act came into force, and there would be no, no different tiered status in that kind of way. But in that first Citizenship Act, it was sole citizenship, right? So you couldn't have dual citizenship. That was a consideration as well.
1: You know, from... 1947, as you mentioned, having sort of former enemy nationals, sort of Italians or Germans, and we move about a generation later. So that baby boom sort generation in the 1970s. Canadian society has changed quite a bit, and it was sort of necessary by then uh, to start making amendments to the Citizenship Act. So I wonder if you could tell us what kind of significant changes were sort of made uh, and why uh, to the uh, Citizenship Act in 1977.
0: Well, it wasn't merely amended. It was basically it, it was thrown out. I mean, it still applied to people born during that period, but they they wrote it afresh. Um, so there were lots of things going on. Of course, uh, we have a really roba- robust. Uh, nationalism in Quebec emerging and so getting rid of British subject status altogether that really needed to go. Um, The Royal Commission on the Status of Women had reported uh, at the end of 1970 and pointed to a number of reforms that really needed to be made uh, to women's claim to citizenship and their ability to pass on their citizenship to their children outside of the context of you know whether whether they were married or not. so that matter, Dual citizenship uh, also was under consideration. It was pretty hotly contested, actually. There was a lot of backing and forthing in that debate. But there was a sense that Canadians were increasingly cosmopolitan people and that it would be helpful to, to be able to have more than one, one citizenship. Um, so that was permitted uh, in the end. Yeah, I think those were the the major the major reforms, um, yeah, getting rid of that wedlock status was was important too. Um, but again, it should one of the reasons why I wake up in two thousand and eight and say what the heck is going on with this situation is because the nineteen forty seven act still applied. So nineteen seventy seven the the act was changed, but. It wasn't retroactive, so you basically had two sets of rules that were that were in operation, and it was very confusing for people. Um, I, yeah, I guess one other thing I would say about that um, was that in in the 1947 Act, um, if you were born abroad to a Canadian citizen parent, you had to affirm that you wanted to keep your Canadian citizenship by the time you turn 21. In the, After 1977, you didn't have to do that anymore if you were the first generation born abroad. But if you were the second generation, you had to affirm your citizenship by age 28, and you had to have a connection to Canada. So you had to have lived in Canada for a year um, was the rule.
1: And actually, that's uh, an interesting connection to sort of the other interesting part of your book is very much about, you know, people who live outside of Canada who want to sort of claim their Canadian citizenship or to reclaim it or reacquire it. I sort of found interesting the, the role of the court of public opinion, right, in helping to amend uh, the Citizenship Act to allow persons who, you know, as you point out in your book, sometimes had little or even no claim at all to acquire or to reacquire Canadian citizenship. I wonder if you could explain to us the, the role of the media in shaping public opinion as a way of pressuring, you know, either the federal liberal or the federal conservative governments to act. And maybe you could also tell us a bit also about maybe uh, why uh, certain cases uh, were more successful than other cases, at least in that sort of court of public opinion.
0: You know, there's a there's a real sense of righteousness that gets attached to um, to someone who speaks very fondly of your country, Right. So um, some of the more successful cases or the situations that we're dealing with are involved people who were the children of Canadian World War Two soldiers. So for some of them, maybe never lived in Canada or lived in Canada very briefly. Um, but had some sense that they were Canadians because they had this heritage of attachment to a Canadian soldier, even if they never really knew their fathers. Um, And so as these stories of lost Canadians really came out, what we heard about was, you know, someone who was, was in their, um, you know, 60s, 50s or 60s saying, but I've always been a Canadian. I'm so dedicated to this country and to this incredible heritage and, you know, the valor that World War II represented. Um, And why would you deny me my, my heritage? I mean, this is who my father was, who made this incredible sacrifice to Canada. I should be entitled. This is how you should honor um, you know, the people who fought and died in World War II. So that, uh, I think, has been a very compelling case at, at a kind of a superficial level anyway um, that the media has really leaned on. They've also, the media has also found, um, if not the children of soldiers, the war brides are incredibly compelling people as well. Um, so lots of great stories about um, these women who, you know, came to Canada as immigrants, right? So this isn't a birthright tale in the same way. Um, but who, you know, had trouble getting, getting their passports renewed as well. You know, there were lovely grand grandmothers at this point, by the time they're making their case and, and how could the Canadian state be so cruel, uh, to them. So there, there's a lot of a, appeal in those stories. We often hear them around Canada day. Um, and uh, and they get us all fired up in, in all kinds of ways. So I think I think when people are able to make a case that says I have this very strong connection to Canada, it's not it might not be me exactly, but it's in my family. Um, and so you know one of the great champions of the lost Canadians is a fellow named Don Chapman, and he he has really worked incredibly hard on behalf of the lost Canadians appearing before parliament and uh, really, really doing amazing service. But, you know, his, his story is actually a little bit complicated. Um, He lives, uh, I'm I'm not sure actually where he lives now. He might live in Vancouver now, but he, he did um, grow up. He was born in Canada. His father or family moved to the U S he, he grew up in the U S he became a pilot um, raised his children in the US, uh, but has this kind of very uh, chest thumping attachment to Canada and likes to invoke a father of confederation, um, you know, v- v- very generous philanthropy to various Canadian universities in his family as the basis of his claim to Canadian citizenship. Now, I would also say at this point, Don Chapman has done a ton of work on behalf of, of Canadians. And if one was to say that Canadian citizenship should be based on some notion of contribution, you know, he's, he's done that. But um, at, at the kind of basic level, he was making his claim on the basis of his family rather than his own contributions.
1: Yeah, Don Chapman's case seems to be a case where he is able to, to, to use the, the, the media, some of the other sort of war brides, or the, the daughters of the, the children of sort of war brides are able to sort of use the media to their advantage, at least for their stated goal of getting Canadian citizenship. Uh, but the media also kind of turns on people who want to acquire Canadian citizenship. And I'm kind of referring here to uh, what is sort of known as maternal tourism. So for our listeners, I live in Richmond, B.C., and Richmond, B.C. or Vancouver in, in, a, in a broader sort of sense, we have many sort of headline stories about maternal tourism, and they usually get portrayed in a very sort of negative way, as you have indicated in your book as well. I wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit about uh, what maternal tourism is and maybe why that sort of case or these sort of stories uh, don't get as much political support anyways.
0: Yeah, so maternity tourism refers to the idea that women are coming to Canada, often from Asia. That's how it's portrayed, um, to give birth to children so that those children will have Canadian citizenship. Um, they don't necessarily hang around, uh, but it, you know that it's a kind of safety citizenship that is acquired by virtue of using you solely. Um, so you know, people feel that this is this is fraudulent. It's not. It's not against the law to do that. It's not against the law to enter Canada as a pregnant person, um, and that it's it's using Canada in in some um, unfortunate way. So I, you know, I I certainly understand that. Importance of connection, and I make a broader argument in the book about abandoning birth altogether as the basis for citizenship, and thinking about how we create how we would create a political community based on our shared uh, need to govern ourselves. And connection is certainly uh, connection and residence are are part of that. But that's not where we live now, right? Right now, we live in a situation of, of you solely and you sanguineous. So I think often maternity tourism, it does happen. So I I don't want to deny that, but but we don't actually have a very good handle on how many people use that as a method of establishing citizenship for their children. But it's pretty small and it feels more like a dog whistle um, than a, a real problem for Canada. So I think what it's doing is actually some political work that fires people up in ways that, you know, are a little bit uh, dodgy, poten- potentially, quite racist, actually. Um, and when you really look at what it wouldn't, what it would mean, I mean, these children would have to come back to Canada, uh, establish themselves. Uh, do well enough to be able to sponsor their parents to get Canadian citizenship. That's a super long game. It would be much more efficient for people to, uh, you know, establish themselves in Canada in, in the regular uh, operation of things. But, you know, people feel like, oh, well, this is a way for them to jump the queue. and. It's, it's actually very, very complicated to become a Canadian citizen. Um, and even even in that situation, it's, it's not going to
1: be straightforward. Lois, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My guest today was Lois Harder. The author of Canadian Club Birthright Citizenship and National Belonging. This book was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. This podcast is made possible by members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simone Náte. This interview was recorded on February 14th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.